You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. My wife wanted me to preach a Thanksgiving message. And, and it always sucks when you ask the question and you already know what, you, what answer you want. So I came to Tara a little while back and I said, hey, I'm preaching on Thanksgiving Day. Do you think I should preach a Thanksgiving message? And I already didn't want to. <laughs> I wanted to stick with Mark because that's where I'm you know, comfortable. And that's where we are. And she said, yeah, you should definitely do that. Really? <laughs> And so now I'm in this position where if I listen to what she said and it goes well, then she made a good decision and and I was wrong. So I'm wrong. And if I don't listen to what she said and it goes poorly, then she can point the finger at me and say, hey, Dan, you're a moron. You should have listened to me. It's a lose-lose. And so now you know why the title of the sermon today is Pay Attention When Dumb People Speak because I will be speaking. (laughs) That is not the only reason. Um, There is more to that title, but hopefully you'll get it by the end. Anyways, I'm trying to make Tara happy and to make me happy. And so we are going to try to do a Thanksgiving message from the book of Mark. (laughs) which I think it's brilliant. So turn your Bibles to the gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 7. We are being a story that has greater prophetical significance than I think we first realize. As we look to this story, it seems like a fairly straightforward story of Jesus going into a place and healing a person who has an infirmity and then kind of moving on. But I think there's a lot more in this story than we first realize. In fact, one of the wonderful things about studying scripture is that as you study, you come across more and more of these little nuggets of truth, this symbolism or significance that you didn't previously realize was there. It's a wonderful thing that it doesn't matter if you've been studying the scripture for a year or for 50 years, you still get to go at it and learn new things and see new connections and just see how God has perfectly woven together this this glorious book. And so I hope to bring out at least one of those Um, deeper meanings this morning as we look at Mark chapter 7. Today we will see that Christ's actions and the significance of them goes beyond the immediate consequences. Mark will help reveal to us the identity of Christ, the purpose of Christ, and his character just in this one story. And so it's a a wonderful story. In Mark chapter 7, we have already seen Jesus involved in a conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees. It was regarding the cleanliness of his disciples' hands, which sounds like a strange thing to debate about. However, for the Pharisees and the scribes, it represented the disciples having dirty hands, represented them not listening to their their law, their traditions, that, that the disciples didn't care about what the Jews ought to care about. And Jesus said, and I quote, your laws don't matter, only God's law is binding. Now, it's not a direct quote, but he said something to that effect. 
Man's laws aren't what matters. It's not man's traditions. It's not the things that, that we make up. It's not our rules. It's not even the baptistic things that we do. It's the word of God that matters. It's the word of God that's binding. And in fact, it is possible to place your traditions and your laws in a place above the word of God that makes the word of God of none effect. That's a terrifying thought. And that's what they were doing. And then he turns to the crowd and he makes them aware of this fact. That that the people were not dirty. They were not unclean because of the things that they did. It wasn't because their hands weren't washed properly. It wasn't because of the places that they visited. The reason that the people were unclean and dirty was because that was the state of their heart. Everything that we do comes from within and, and comes out. It's the things inside of us that defile us. And so he wants the people to know that there is no point in keeping a set of laws to make you righteous. It will never work because the problem isn't your actions, it's your heart. And so what they need more than anything is a savior who can take care of that problem. Immediately after this conflict, Jesus leaves Galilee, a Gentile territory, or a Jewish territory, and he goes um, north toward two cities called Tyre and Sidon. And Tyre and Sidon were, were not nice Jewish cities. They were evil, wicked Gentile cities who were notoriously against the Jews. And so he leaves this place, and almost to make this point, I want to show you, I want to teach you something about where cleanliness can come from. We're going to go to the dirtiest place possible, and I'll show you a woman who has real faith. And that's where they go. And that's where they meet this woman whose daughter is sick, who comes to Christ in desperate need, and humbles herself, and begs Jesus to save her daughter. And Jesus does. He looks at her and he says, a woman, great is thy faith. That's not a compliment that Jesus threw around all the time. It was like, hey, your faith's really great. Oh, your faith is great too. I I want you to know you all have great faith. No, this this was incredibly rare for Jesus to look at somebody and say, you've got great faith. Do you know what he usually said? Where is your faith? Don't you have any faith? Don't you know who I am? But this woman knew who Jesus was. This Gentile woman from a wicked city was the one that got it. And Jesus taught a wonderful lesson. It's faith that cleanses and nothing else. And so, after he spends time in Tyre, he goes a little bit more north to Sidon and then swings around to the Decapolis. And so we'll begin our reading in Mark chapter 7, verse 1. And again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came to the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. So Decapolis is a group of 10 cities, 10 primarily Gentile cities who are on the the east side of the Sea of Galilee, the opposite side of most of the places that Jesus did his ministry. And this is important because he is remaining purposefully so, in Gentile territory for at least one more episode. And it says in verse number 32, that, and they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. 
And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he, Jesus, took him aside from the multitude, and he put his fingers into his ears, and he spit, and he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he said, he sighed, and he saith unto him, Ephphatha, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake again. Short story. There's a lot of detail in that story. Begins with a group of people, and they bring unto him one that was deaf. I wonder who this they is. I think what's significant is these people knew that Jesus could heal this man. And... They loved the man enough to bring him to Jesus. So these unnamed they are people who know who Jesus is and know that he's the hope that this man could have. They bring him. The man is deaf, and it says that he's got an impediment in his speech. Now, I don't know if you've run across a lot of people that have speech impediments, um, but usually they're fairly minor. You talk to somebody and they stutter a little bit. Probably like I stuttered a little bit already today. (laughs) Um, I had a speech impediment when I was a child. I stuttered quite a bit for a while. And when we read that, we think, well, this man is deaf. And he, you know, every once in a while he stutters a little bit. Or he has a little bit difficulty speaking. But that's not the full extent of his problem. The word mogalalos, which is an awesome word, It means nearly or completely unable to speak. And so this man is not just a little bit impeded in his speech. This man is nearly unable to speak completely. And Jesus takes the man aside. He brings him aside from the multitude. Already, I I think, is a wonderful picture of how he cared for the individual. It wasn't a show he was putting on. He wasn't going to get some more brownie points with the crowd by healing the guy, like a lot of people try and do. Hey, if you want to see me do something good, come here and I'll show you how awesome I am. Jesus actually does the opposite. He says, listen, I want to help you, but I don't want everybody to to think that all I'm about is doing miracles. So let's go aside and and I want to deal with you one-on-one. And so he takes the man aside and he does something that strikes us as very strange and super gross. First, he takes his fingers, probably his pinkies, they're the smallest. And he puts them in the man's ears. What's that about? And then he spits on his fingers. And he puts them and touches the man's tongue. Anybody here a germaphobe? Like, like seriously, okay? There are a few. Um, I think my kids would be better off if they were germaphobes. (laughs) But back then, there weren't a bunch of germaphobes going around, right? People didn't understand how all the diseases worked and everything. And and so when we read this, we might delve deep into the significance of all of it. But for a Jewish Gentile crowd in the first century, uh, Jesus was performing the action of a doctor. And doctors did things that were much weirder than this to their patients on a regular basis. And so nobody would have looked at that and said, Ew, that's so gross. How could Jesus do that? Um, Like we do. Instead, they would have thought, okay, clearly Jesus is working on his ears and his tongue. But I think even more than that, 
when Jesus does this to the man, remember, the man can't hear and he can't speak very well. So communication is difficult. So when Jesus does this to the man, he is telling the man in a way that he can hear exactly what he's about to do. I'm going to touch your ears. I'm going to help you hear. I'm going to touch your tongue, and I'm going to give you the ability to speak. He says it in a way that he can understand. Mark continues in great detail. He says that Jesus, before as he did this, sighed. Those are one of the details you don't expect the Bible to record, right? Like, oh, write that down. (laughs) Jesus sighed. I don't think that's, but there is something to a sigh, especially because the sigh recorded here was a sigh of grief or more like a groan. And if you read the Gospels, you find that on rare occasions, they will give us insight into Jesus' emotion, emotional status at the time. They will show the emotion that Jesus was conveying. And so we find in the garden that he's in agony, right? We find that he goes to Lazarus' tomb and he's weeping. We see glimpses of, him, of his emotion, but quite often we just hear about what Jesus did. And we have to kind of imagine how he was doing. Well, this idea of sighing, of, of a deep groan, gives us insight into what Jesus was feeling. He was mourning the effects of a sin-cursed world. He was confronted by this man who couldn't hear and he couldn't speak very well. And he was seeing the effects of sin on this world. And rather than just snapping his fingers from afar and healing this man, he gets up close and personal, touches, he's there with him, and he in a way, enters into his suffering. He feels the pain, and he sighs. Then he speaks this word, epfatha. Now, that's a word that I dare you to try and say five times fast. Epfatha. There are about three occasions in the Gospels. One while Jesus is on the cross, one we saw with the little girl, uh, the 12-year-old Jairus' daughter, when she was healed, where the Gospel writers record what Jesus said in Aramaic. And they likely do this because it was so memorable when they heard it. And so Peter, relating the story to Mark, said, hey, Mark, you should have been there. Jesus, he he touched the man's ears, he put his fingers on his tongue, and then he said this word, atphatha. It means be open. And immediately, straightway, he could hear and he could speak. I like to think that this man was deaf and heard Jesus or watched Jesus start to pronounce this word at Fatha and then heard the last syllable. Like that's how immediate, that's how straightway, as soon as Jesus says, be open, duh, he heard the duh, right? Because when Jesus performs a miracle, it is right away. It is clear, it is evident. Verse number 36, and he charged them that they should tell no man, but the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it and were beyond measure astonished, saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. When I 
read verse 36, I think of my children. The more I charge them, the more they do it. (laughs) The more you tell them not to do something, the more they want to do it. And this is exactly what happens here. And I think we have an idea of why these people are so bent on telling the world about what Jesus has done. Because they're astonished. They're amazed at what Christ has done, how he's transformed this person. That he was deaf and now he hears. That he was unable to speak. He was dumb and now he can speak and sing. This is a story worth telling. And even when Jesus says, stop it. They say, we can't. We got to tell people. Now, I mean, we could debate whether or not they should have obeyed him. They should have obeyed him, right? You should always obey Jesus. But there's got to be something to this that we can see and say, but it does make sense, right? It makes sense when you see somebody who is completely changed, and then you you know that there's a person with the ability to do that, to want to tell everybody else about it. If there's a Savior who completely changes people, who transforms people, who brings them from death to spiritual life, there should be other people who want to tell them about that. It makes sense for this person who can now speak to want to use his voice for the glory of God. So there is something right about the desire here. And so as we look at this story, and as we consider the fact that it's Thanksgiving, Let's uh, apply it to our lives today. The first thing that I wanted us to see today is that we ought to be thankful that the Christ has come. In verse 32, we mentioned the word for speech impediment was mogilalos. It is a word that is only found once in the New Testament. And the only other place that it's found is in the Greek Septuagint, It is um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was around during that time, and Jesus often quoted from it. And so in the the Greek Septuagint, we find Mogilalos in Isaiah 35. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. This is an amazing chapter, and Isaiah is declaring the coming kingdom of God, what his kingdom will be like. In verse number two, we find that people will see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. So if you want to know what the future holds, what the kingdom of God is like, here's one primary thing, that everybody will see the glory of God on full display, the excellency of God. He goes on in verse 3 to start to give specifics. He says in Isaiah 35, verse 3, Strengthen the weak hands, confirm the feeble knees, Say to them that have a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Here is the need to recognize our weakness, right? That it's not us that saves ourselves. It's actually okay to be weak and to be broken because in that state, you weak hands and feeble knees and fearful hearts Fear not, be strong, because God will come with a vengeance, and he will save you. That's some good news. So what's that look like? Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. 
Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb, the mogilalos, will sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. The kingdom of God has come in Christ. Jesus was initiating the first step of the kingdom of God coming on earth was for the Savior to come and then to die. But in this, we see that Christ is foreshadowing what the future holds, what the kingdom looks like in its full representation here on earth. That the deaf will hear and the dumb will sing. And so we ought to be thankful that Christ has come. See, this healing, it's far more significant than just receiving the ability to speak and to hear. This is the sign of the Messiah. For the Jews, they were waiting for the Messiah. That, that was their hope, right? They, they just wanted God to send the deliverer, the one that had been prophesied about over and over and over again. And now Christ is showing that he is that guy. You take this specific prophecy, there's going to be a deaf guy he will hear, and the dumb people, the, the, the people with a speech impediment, will speak clearly. They'll sing. Christ is that one. And so we ought to be thankful. We get to look back and, and, and read the whole story and know that Christ has come. Be, th be thankful that the king has come and that he's come to save us. That's what it said he would do, right? He would come with a vengeance with a recompense or a reward. He would come to save you. And that is why Christ came. He will come again to set up his kingdom. But for now, let's be thankful that he has come. The second thing we notice in this text is that we should be thankful for what Christ can do. Now, obviously, as we look at the story, we see that Jesus had the power to heal people. He had the power to give physical hearing to a deaf man. But as with so many of the things that Jesus did, this physical miracle has a wonderful spiritual application. I wonder if you've ever had the experience where you were trying to share the gospel with someone and it just seemed like they could not hear it. And it, it didn't matter how many ways you packaged it, how many, how many times you went over the story, how many places you went to scripture, it just seemed like they didn't get it. You know, you have the conversation, like, it's not works, it's not being good, it's, it's faith in Christ, it's repenting of your sin. And at the end they say, I think I get it, I just have to live right. No, you don't get it. You don't get it. That's not it! <laughs> right? And Jesus has come so that he could give deaf people their hearing. So that they can truly hear the gospel. It is a wonderful thing when you see that person who for so long seemed like it just went in one ear and out the other. All of a sudden, it just seems to stick. They seem to get it and be amazed by it. Uh, I grew up in a Roman Catholic church, and I learned a lot of good and true things in the church. A lot of true things about the Trinity and about Jesus and about God and, and all of those things. And if you were to ask me when I was 12, 13 years old, if I was a Christian, I would say, yes, absolutely. How can I not be a Christian? I go to church, right? But I remember going to the Baptist church and hearing some things about Jesus and starting to be like, oh, I never really thought about it that way. And then I remember very clearly 
going to a camp and hearing the gospel presented and hearing that Christ died for my sins and that he rose again to give me life and that I needed to give my life to the Lord. And, and I remember the conviction that I felt, the clarity that I now saw that Christ had, had truly died for me, that my only hope of eternal life was, was found in him and that I had a choice to make. I had to trust him as savior or reject him, but, but I saw it now, right? That is what Christ has come to do, to die and to rise again, and then to give us ears so that we can hear. He has the ability to give spiritual hearing of the gospel, the voice of scriptures. And I don't think that only applies to people who don't know him as Savior. I think as Christians live in this life, and as we, we try and work through all the troubles we face, we have the word of God. And the spirit of God illuminates God's word to us so that even in difficult situations, he can speak through his word and through his spirit into us in a way that we can grasp real truth. We can hear the voice of God. What a crazy idea that you can hear the voice of God. And that is what he's given to us in his word paired with the Holy Spirit working in us. That's what it does. And so we should be thankful for what Christ can do. He is a powerful God. He can do what no man can do. He can speak to a deaf man and give him hearing, but he can also work in our lives and enable us and help us to see truth. As we follow him and listen and desire to know truth, he guides us into that through his spirit. And so we should be thankful for what he does. And not only that, I don't want to lose this. He enables us to speak. Once he's heard, now he speaks. If you're a believer this morning, you ought to thank Jesus. He did, he's enabled you to hear the gospel. And then you ought to help him to allow you to speak to others the truths that have transformed you. Finally, this morning, we ought to be thankful for who Jesus is. And this is where I like all the details of this story, because I think the details tell us so much about his person. First of all, he is the Savior who comes down to our level. Yes, he condescended himself. He, he laid aside um, his deity and his deity. He, he laid aside all of the use of the attributes of his deity, and then he took on himself the form of a servant and was made of no reputation, and he humbled himself. So he condescended, he came down to us in that physical sense, but in this story, he, on an individual sense, comes to this man in a way that he can understand him. He brings him aside to spend time with him. And then instead of just saying, at Fatha, where this guy's like, oh, okay, yeah, I can hear, he says, I want you to, to know what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to open your ears. I'm going to allow you to speak. He tells him the story in a way that this man, specifically to this man, can understand. He comes down to our level, and he healed his brokenness. Second thing that I think we can be thankful for as we think about who Jesus is, is that he is the Savior who 
sighs. The pain that this man experienced was understood and felt by Jesus. God recorded that detail for us. He wanted us to see Jesus' emotional response to this man's suffering. If you, have, if you were in Isaiah 35, you can go back there just for a second. This whole chapter is declaring what the kingdom of God is like. And some of the things that are declared in that chapter are from Jesus' first coming, and some of the things relate to his second coming. But in verses 5 to 9, we find the description of the effects of the fall being rolled back. Right? This, is, this is what it looks like when paradise is returned, when we're back to the beauty and perfection of the garden. And then in verse 10, it says, The ransom of the Lord shall return, and shall come to Zion with songs, and everlasting joy upon their heads. Doesn't that sound good? Everlasting joy in a world of sadness and brokenness and depression and all those things, anxiety that we experience all the time. This idea of everlasting joy is pretty awesome. And then he says, They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Uh, isn't that interesting? That God recorded that Jesus sighed when confronted with this man's brokenness. And that one of the promises of his kingdom is that sighing shall be done away. That, that sighing, this groaning, is an effect of the fall. And Jesus entered into that for us so that he could bring us back to a place without the fall, back to paradise. It's almost like he sighed for us. Um, there's a story that I read when I was in grade 11 at a student convention, and it was called The Ragman. My mom's laughing because she remembers practicing this story with me a million times. Rags, rags, new rag for old. I take your tired rags, rags. And the story is, uh, that probably sounds strange to you, but I won't remember it. My dad will remember it, I'm sure. The story is about a man who goes to all these different people, and he finds them in different states of despair, different problems that they have. And as he encounters them, he exchanges what they are lacking, whether it's their, their cold and they're lacking a coat, he gives them his coat and takes on that feeling of coldness. Or, or he, the man, one man has no arm and he gives him his arm. Yeah. So in every one of these cases, I'm, I'm getting more and more of the story coming back to me. Um, but in every one of these cases, Jesus gives something of himself and takes on the hurt of that other person. But ultimately, this rag man is left completely disheveled and in a really rough state. And he goes up onto a hill and he dies. And then three days later, he comes back to life. He's perfect. And I thought that's a little bit of the story of Mark chapter 7, where Jesus enters into pain. And because he's the Savior come to, to heal the world, to give life to the world, he can speak a word and this man can hear and speak again. That Jesus took on our sighing. He came into the fall so that we can be back to paradise. He is the Savior who sighs. Listen, don't ever think that Jesus doesn't understand your pain. 
that he doesn't know what you're going through. He lived a tough life. He knows the pain that humans face. And he knows you at a very individual level. And he is the one who has taken pain on so that you don't have to experience that forever. The last thing that we can be thankful for as we think about who Jesus is in the story is that he is the Savior who shows undeserving people grace. In Mark chapter 7, verse 31, it begins, again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came to the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. Now, we can already say Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon, these really evil, wicked cities. Why would he do that? It was to meet a woman, right? So he showed this woman undeserving grace in a, in a wicked, evil, Gentile place. But what I think is interesting is that he went after there through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. And if you were looking on a map, you would find that if Tyre is here, Sidon is up here, you have the Sea of Galilee here, he has to go all the way back down this side of the Sea of Galilee before going back around to where he's usually ministering in the province of Galilee. So this is a long detour for him to go visit the, the Decapolis, these 10 towns or 10 cities. So why did he do that? What's that all about? Well, what I think is, is even more interesting is that this isn't the first time he's been there. Um, last time he went there, he was greeted by a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. The city had tried to do everything they could to help him. When that didn't work, they tried to bind him up with chains. He broke the chains, and so they just decided, there's nothing we can do. Let's send him out into the desert, out into the wilderness. He can live among the tombs. So that was the state that Jesus found this man in. Nobody else could help him. He's, he's possessed by a legion of demons, and he's utterly hopeless. And Jesus goes to this man, and this man comes to him, and he casts the demons out of him. And as he does so, he casts the demons into a herd of pigs who then run off a cliff into the sea. And the people, when they heard this happen, came out to see the miracle. And they come out and they say, Jesus. And then they see this man who is crazy and naked and just in a lot of bad state. And they see him perfectly clothed and in his right mind. They see the miracle and they're afraid. And then they find out that all the pigs have died. They think these pigs were worth a lot of money, right? And so they have a choice to make. Do we want the Jesus that will cost us some pigs? Or do we want the Jesus who will heal our troubles? And they said, he's costing too much. In verse number, chapter 5, verse 17, it says the people, they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. Jesus can perform a miracle and heal this man and give him freedom when he was in bondage, but it's costing too much. Jesus, you need to leave. They had rejected him. And as Jesus is leaving, he looks at the man that he's just saved. And he says, go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord has done for thee and had compassion on thee. So Jesus, instead of just being like, yeah, you're right, I'm done. See you later. He says, hey, listen, man, 
I know that they want me to leave now, but I want you to go tell them. Tell your friends how I loved you. Tell them of the compassion I showed. Tell them the great things that I did for you. Spread the message. Why? He didn't tell them then, but he's planning to come back. And so now Jesus comes back to the Decapolis, and guess what? There are people already there who know of Jesus' healing power. How do they know that? Because Jesus had sent somebody already to tell them, right? So Jesus is coming back to this primarily Gentile place that had already rejected him when he was sent to the Jews, and he's, he's back to show this incredible grace. This is the grace of hearing the gospel time and time again. This is the grace of having Christian people in your life that want to tell you that Jesus can save you, even though we've rejected. This is the grace that the Christian experiences, because you know that we stumble and fall all the time. And what does he say to us? Confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's the God that we serve. The one that comes back to us, that calls us back, that has grace for all. And so, as we look at this story, I hope that you're thankful that the Savior has come. That Jesus Christ came to this earth. That he fulfilled all the prophecy of the Old Testament. He came to begin the inauguration of his kingdom and that he's coming again to set up his kingdom here on earth forever. I hope that you're thankful for what he has done. That he has the power to give deaf the ability to hear. That he's the power to allow the dumb to speak. That he has the power to change all of the messed up brokenness in our lives. And to allow us to hear truth. To allow us to hear the word of God. And I hope that you're thankful for who he is. This picture of Jesus, the one who comes and takes the deaf man aside and touches him and spends time with him and then heals him. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful savior that we serve. The fact that he came back to Decapolis, a place that had already rejected him, it just shows how awesome his grace is. And so we have a savior that we have so much to be thankful for. As we think about Thanksgiving, and as we thank him for Turkey and for all of the physical blessings that we experience, can we not forget how awesome our Savior is? That he loves such undeserving people. That he shows such amazing grace. That he enters into our struggles, takes them upon himself, and then offers us paradise in return. One of the greatest hopes that we have as a Christian is that whatever struggle you face now, it's not eternal. Because he came, there's a kingdom coming, and we get to be a part of it. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for this story that is, um, it's a great story of a man who's had so much difficulty all his life, and he's now given freedom to speak and to hear. Um, Lord, I can't imagine what it would be like to be that man. And yet, God, we know that we serve a God who offers freedom to all. That the truth is, all of us are in bondage to something. You're in bondage to our own sin. And Lord, I thank you that you've offered us freedom. And Lord, if there's a person here today that doesn't know that freedom in Christ, help them to see the power of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus 
Help them to see that he came to us because we couldn't go to him. And he came to us to give us um, the righteousness that we cannot attain, obtain by ourselves so that we can go and be with him forever. And Lord, I pray that you would just allow those who have been previously deaf to the gospel to hear it today. And Lord, I pray that those of us who know you would uh, just think deeply about how awesome the Savior that we serve are is that we serve a God who is loving and compassionate and full of grace and mercy, that we deserve none of the good things that you give us, that we have eternity to look forward to, and we have so, so much to be thankful for. And Lord, I pray that we would live lives of gratitude for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.